You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual This is an especially heartbreaking day for all of our friends, our fellow Americans who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. The shooter targeted a nightclub where people came together to be with friends, to dance, and to sing, and to live. The place where they were attacked is more than a nightclub. It is a place of solidarity and empowerment where people have come together to raise awareness, to speak their minds, and to advocate for their civil rights. Late on Saturday night, around 2 a.m., I was in a gay bar in Madison, Wisconsin. At the exact same time, a deranged and bigoted monster was storming into a gay nightclub in Orlando. Terry and I were having a beer at the Shamrock at the same time that young, gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people were at a Latino nightclub dance party at Pulse in Orlando. It's become fashionable to run down gay bars to talk about how we're post, not quite post-gay, everyone throws post-gay around, but a lot of us, a lot of people will say that they are very much post-gay bar, that gay bars are retro in some way or not needed anymore, that we are living in a world, hopefully, where we're moving to no labels and a world where, of course, with the internet, you don't really need a gay bar because you can find everything you're looking for on Grinder or Scruff or Recon. But Pulse was packed on Saturday night and the Shamrock was pretty crowded here in Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm recording this today. So clearly people still need these places. They still need these bars. Brian Safi, the comedian and actor, wrote on Twitter, gay bars exist because they are safe places in a world that remains unsafe for LGBT. I'm heartbroken for all the victims who should have been safe. And Frank Bruni, on the day of the attack, wrote this in the New York Times. This is an attack on freedom itself. The people inside Pulse were citizens of America. More to the point, they were emblems of it. In Pulse, they found a refuge. In Pulse, they found joy. To him, the attacker, they deserved neither. I remember very distinctly the first time I walked into a gay bar. It's called The Bushes on Halstead Street in Chicago when I was a teenager. And in that place, in that space, I found joy. But it was what I witnessed when I first went into that bar and the other bars I visited were frequented in Chicago when I was coming out. And what I found in those bars was was more than joy. It was the truth. I found, I saw with my own eyes that what I had been told all my life, that being queer, that being gay would mean being alone. It would mean being miserable. It would mean being loveless. It would mean a joyless existence, that none of that was true. Because in those bars, no one was alone, and people were happy, and there was joy, and there was love, or the possibility of love, and there was friendship, and there was camaraderie. And at that time, 
when I was coming out in the very early 80s, it was hard to find those things, hard to find evidence of any of that outside of gay bars and clubs because there was no internet. There were no gay characters or storylines on television. There were no Ellens or Rachel Maddows or Anderson Coopers. There were just lies. Lies about who we were, lies about what it meant to be one of them. And the chief lie was always, they're unhappy. those people are unhappy. You don't want to be one of those people because you will be miserable and alone. Gay joy really was a secret. The fact that gay life, the gay experience, the LGBT experience could be a joyful one. It was really hard to find evidence of that outside of gay bars. And it was really hard to walk into a gay bar that first time, to physically enter that space. It was like passing through an airlock, but you were also outing yourself. To be seen going in or out of that gay bar was, at the time, and in some places even today, a huge personal risk. And the most galling part of the lie that we were told, and still are told by the haters and the bigots, but to less effect, was that the people telling us there was no such thing as joy in the lives of gay people were the same people working to make gay people miserable. Gay people are miserable, so don't be gay, they would say, as they did everything to make sure we were miserable, discriminating against us, bashing us, throwing us out of our families and communities, throwing us out of our apartments, firing us from our jobs. It's like an arsonist telling you that this apartment building is a shitty place to live because it's on fire. So what were people finding in that bar? What were people finding in Pulse? Those young people reading the list of the names of the dead? The ages of the dead, so, so many young people, they were finding the truth. They were witnessing it, experiencing it in a way that just can't be replicated online. They were finding joy and connection and intimacy and friendship and maybe love. I met my husband in a gay club. That reading now about Pulse sounds a lot like it. A place where everybody was welcome. Queers of all kinds and our straight pals. A place where everyone mixed and danced, got each other's backs, got each other drinks. I don't want to be too Pollyanna about gay bars or the gay experience. Joy isn't the only thing you will find in a gay bar or a nightclub. You can also find judgment and snark and shade and side-eye and rejection and heartbreak. But gay life isn't all joy. It's also pain, as everyone's lives are. But on those nights, on nights like the one that everyone was having at Pulse before that bigoted madman burst in, there are nights that seem transcendently joyful, where a mood sweeps through the room and sweeps up everyone in it. And it sounds like it was that kind of a night at Pulse. A night similar to the night at Rebar when I met my husband. A night when the universe conspired to give me so much. But at Pulse, it was a night when a madman conspired to take so much from the friends, from the dead, to take their lives, from their friends and families, parents, partners of the dead to take their loved ones and from gay people, lesbian people, bi people, trans people all over the world 
to take from all of us everywhere that hard-won sense of belonging and place and safety. And we aren't safe, particularly poor queer people, particularly trans queer people, not safe, but safer than we used to be. This wasn't the first attack on a gay bar. Some bigoted monster planted a nail bomb in a pub in London in the 90s. A madman tried to set fire to a gay bar in Seattle on New Year's Eve 2014. A madman, another arsonist, set fire to a gay bar in New Orleans in the 70s. And 30 people died. There have been other attacks. There will be attacks in the future. Because there is, and it seems there always will be, hate targeting the lesbian, gay, bi, and trans community. And we need to confront that hate. There's a couple of things we need to confront. Guns, again, guns, access to guns. The killer in Orlando used the same weapon that the killer used in that grade school in Sandy Hook and that the killers used in that office park in San Bernardino, an assault weapon. We need to bring back, we used to have a ban on assault weapons. We need to bring back the ban on assault weapons. We need to make it harder for people to get their hands on weapons designed to mow down as many human beings as possible in the shortest amount of time possible with the least amount of effort possible. And we need to confront and we need to hold people accountable for the toxic, murderous homophobia and transphobia that is continuously pumped into our culture. And the main source, the wellspring of that toxic homophobia and transphobia is religion. Not all religions, not all faith leaders. I can hear the nults running their keyboards. We're not all like that. We know you're not all like that. But you know what? Enough of you, people of faith, are like that to keep this toxic homophobia and transphobia in play, to keep it deadly, to keep it lethal. And so we need to confront that. We need to argue with people about their theology, which is something I used to say maybe we should try to avoid. Okay, we're going to go to hell. That's fine. You can think that. Let us live our lives and God can sort it out. And if you're right, you win. But the price of not confronting people about their theology is obviously too great. The Orlando sheriff on CNN shortly after the shooting, shootings, murders, said, we call on members of the clergy to pray for us, to pray for this community, to pray for healing. We, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people everywhere, we call on members of the clergy, imams, priests, rabbis, pastors, to examine your own hands for evidence of blood. Because this kind of murderous homophobia, it doesn't come from nowhere. The killer's father was on television saying that his son was angered and may have been motivated to commit these crimes, this crime, this series of crimes, these 50 murders, after seeing two men kiss in Miami in front of his three-year-old son. Because how do you explain to a three-year-old two men kissing? I guarantee you that that three-year-old had no problem with two men kissing. I guarantee it was not an issue for that three-year-old because that three-year-old 
had not yet lived on this earth long enough to be poisoned by homophobia, which is pushed by who? By what? And to what end? And when will it end? And how many have to die before it ends? And how many atrocities must there be? How many attacks on gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people will there be before we, and by we I don't just mean queer people, I mean all good and decent people, stand up to the homophobes and the bigots and no longer allow them to hide behind their pulpits, their quote-unquote sincerely held religious beliefs, their Leviticus quotes, their Quranic quotes, their paper-thin, literally paper-thin, justifications for hatred and bigotry. A lot of screaming and yelling on Twitter that liberals want to talk about guns, conservatives want to talk about Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. We can talk about both things. We can talk about religious bigotry and we can talk about our poisonous, toxic gun culture. And religious bigotry against LGBT people isn't unique to Islam. Ted Cruz, Bobby Jindal, and Mike Huckabee all spoke at a faith event and were brought on stage by the host of that event, a Christian pastor, after, immediately after, he called for the extermination, for the deaths of gay people, of all gay Americans. So this isn't unique to Islam, but you see evidence of it everywhere, justifications for it everywhere. You see a justification for it when the Pope, cool Pope Francis, gave a speech, made remarks about the shooting in Orlando and couldn't bring himself to acknowledge who the victims of that shooting were. We have refuges now. Gay bars, historically, were always refuges for queer people. And we have refuge now in places that 40 years ago, 35 years ago when I was coming out, we never expected that we would ever have. We can find a refuge, many of us, in our families of origin, in our workplaces, with our straight colleagues, in our communities. Gay bars aren't the only place we can find refuge. But gay bars and nightclubs like Pulse, like The Cuff in Seattle, like Roscoe's and Sidetracks in Chicago, like The Eagle and G in New York, like Pulse in Orlando, still places of refuge. And clearly still necessary and needed places of refuge. Unfortunately, not impenetrable places, not completely safe places, because the doors are open. The doors at Pulse, like the doors at Rebar, where I met Terry, open to all. It's June. This attack came in June. June is Gay Pride Month. June is the month that communities all across the United States host gay pride parades, celebrate LGBT life. And Pride, of course, commemorates an attack on a gay bar on the Stonewall Inn in New York City in 1969 that sparked the gay revolution, the modern LGBT civil rights movement. But that attack on that gay bar, that attack on Stonewall, that lit a fuse, that changed the world. And here we are, June, and an attack on a gay bar and one of the key differences in these attacks, if you're looking for the silver lining, is the attack on Stonewall 
on the Stonewall Inn in the village in New York City in 1969. It was an attack by the authorities. The cops burst into that bar to arrest the patrons who fought back. And this weekend, in Orlando at Pulse, a gay bar under attack, and this time the cops, they burst in not to arrest the patrons, but to attempt to save them. We will always live in a world with bigots. The measure of a society is not is it free of homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, racism, sexism? The test is how does that society respond when racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, when those things manifest themselves, how does that society respond? Deadly, deadly form of homophobia manifested itself in Orlando this weekend. And you can see a measure of progress, as painful as it is at this moment to even acknowledge progress, in the response. The response of good people, the response of the President of the United States, the response of the authorities. If any good is going to come of this, in the same way that something good and transformative came of the Stonewall riots, the attack on Stonewall, let it be this attack also serving as a catalyst. Stonewall-inspired, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people all over the country and all over the world to come out, to fight, to demand change, to demand the respect and love of their families and their communities and their nations. Let us bury the dead. Let us mourn and then let us come out of this attack making demands. A demand for an end to gun violence, a demand for sensible and sane gun control, and a demand for an end to homophobia and to transphobia, and a demand for accountability for those who promote it, whether they're promoting it in a church or a mosque or a legislature. It has to end, and it has to end now. Stonewall ended the closet. Let Pulse end the tolerance for bigotry. Okay, before we get to the rest of this week's show, please note that we recorded this episode of the Savage Love Cast, the rest of it, before the attacks. So there's going to be a startling change of tone when we come back. Hello, Dan. My name's Sabrina. I'm a 19-year-old bisexual female. I've been with my boyfriend for about a year now. Sex is great. We argue about who gets to go down on who first. Um, it's frequent, very good. I have no complaints at all. However, he's my only sexual partner to date. I have dated women, but I've never been physically intimate with them. And it's not from a lack of desire, but just um, a matter of the situation. I've discussed my desire to be with women with him. Of course, the first question most men ask you when you tell them that you're bisexual is, would you have a threesome? I had to ask that question. And the answer that I got was a very uncomfortable no. So he's very monogamous and would not be open to either me having sex with a woman myself, by myself, or with him. So I suppose my question is being, should I continue a perfectly happy relationship and not fulfill these desires of mine? Or should I break off a happy relationship to explore these desires? 
I don't want to end up at 40 years old and having never been with a woman. But I don't want to learn something good for something that I'm not sure about. Arguing about who goes down on who first, that is a good problem to have. Another good thing to have is perspective and a long view. And I'm here from the future to tell you that the percentage of people, adult people, people who are in their 40s, who are still with the people or the person that they were dating when they were 19 is close to zero. So there's no rush here. I think you can stay in this relationship that you find very fulfilling sexually and emotionally. And rather than worry about being 40 one day, waking up and being 40 one day and never having eaten pussy, you should just tell yourself that either in time you guys will, for the reasons most people break up with the people they're dating when they're teenagers, break up for one of those reasons. And then you'll have some freedom and latitude to write your own ticket, to perhaps go out there and date women, to prioritize if you're going to enter into a relationship with another man or another woman, permission slips or non-monogamy or monogamishamy so that you are free to enjoy both or all genders sexually. Also, that your boyfriend right now, a year into the relationship, isn't interested in non-monogamy or isn't interested in three ways doesn't mean your boyfriend will never be interested in those things. Most people who are in non-monogamous relationships were in monogamous relationships once upon a time. Most people in non-monogamous relationships wanted or thought they wanted or actually did want at the time monogamy. So the person your boyfriend is now is not necessarily the person your boyfriend will be always. And the person who is your boyfriend now may not be the person who is your boyfriend or girlfriend always. So don't look at him and despair of all the pussy you're never going to get to eat. Look at him and enjoy who he is, who you guys are to each other right now, the awesome sex that you're having right now, the wonderful relationship that you have right now. And don't stress about the pussy you're not getting right now because being with him now doesn't preclude getting that pussy with or without him in the future. Dan, straight male, southwestern United States. I met a girl on a kink website. She lives on the other side of the country and is a engaged, and she says she's a virgin. We've been talking on the phone a lot. I was really into her when we first started talking because it was all phone sex. Now that we're talking more, she calls me all the time, and uh, I've kind of, it's kind of lost some of the magic that I originally had when we were just role-playing over the phone. Now I'm in a spot where we're going to be meeting at the end of the week, and uh, I'm afraid I'm a little in over my head. I am not sure if I'm just going there to bone down, and she kind of just doesn't match my affections. Like, she's thinking about moving out here already and stuff like that. I feel like I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm uncertain about whether or not I have affections. I think they're there. I really just need to bone down because I've been alone for so long. Um, please tell me what I should do. Hello? Hey, it's Dan Savage. Fucking Christ. I am. Are you? Uh, How's it going? Thanks for calling me. Sure. Have you met this person yet? Are we in time? I FaceTime with him. I saw him on Facebook, and they have a Facebook profile. We FaceTime. She sent me some of her underwear. Uh-huh. But the the face-to-face meeting hasn't happened? No, sir. 
Is that happening this weekend still? Yeah. Okay. So you want to know what I think you should do? Yeah, I do want to know. Uh, it sounds like you've got cold feet about this meeting. I'm not uh, Nostradamus there or Sigmund Freud. That wasn't hard to figure out. That's basically what your call is all about. It also sounds like wherever she is, she has cold feet about whatever it is the fuck that she's doing. You say that she's engaged to someone else, correct? That's true. So what you kind of, you've come to symbolize something in her life that's a much bigger thing than the person you actually are. And I think that's why she's making you feel so uncomfortable. Because you right now are the reason for her to pull the plug on this engagement that she clearly doesn't want to go through with. So she's inflating you and inflating your thing, this thing you guys have together, into something just enormous so that it leverages her out of this engagement. And you become her scape. She's going to run away with you so that she doesn't have to go through it, the marriage, with him, whoever he is. And that's probably what's making you feel really uncomfortable is that she's pinning all of her expectations on you and, and giving you a, a kind of weight and not just symbolically, but practically that you can't bear right now because you don't actually know her and the kind of commitment that she's in a way backing you into making to her, of course it's going to make you uncomfortable. You've never met. You don't know her. You can't promise her you want to be together with her. Yeah, because she's already like looking for jobs out here where I live and shit like that. It's really nerve-wracking. Okay, when you, and you need to say that you, I think you should go ahead and meet her because you have cold feet about meeting her. And maybe meeting her is going to alleviate those cold feet. Maybe once you meet her, you'll be like, yes, this is someone I could see myself with. And okay, she got a little hyper about it and was chomping at the bit, and that made me nervous. Not who she is, but the way she was acting. And so I'm willing to like keep exploring this after you meet her. Who knows? Or maybe you'll meet her and go, bitch is crazy, and then you pull the fucking plug. But I don't think you pull the plug before you meet her necessarily. You do, however, say to her, slow the fuck down. You want yeah, well, well, th And that's why I called you, Dan, is because... I've really learned how to be an adult about these things to your podcast. And so what I said up front is I said, you know, I'm not a hundred percent certain that I'm not coming here to just use you for sex. I don't know where I, where I am right now. Mm -hmm. So I was up front with her. Mm -hmm. That was the right thing to do, right? That was the right thing to do. Some people out there listening are going to think, Oh, that's cruel. No, you're just like laying it out there. I see this as a sexual thing purely and exclusively right now. Who knows? But I'm just in it for the sex. If you're in it for more than the sex, maybe it wouldn't be a great idea for us to meet because I wouldn't want to throw my dick at you and then fill you not just with dick, but with false hopes about my intentions. Oh, my God. You can say okay. all that, and you perhaps should say all that. And if you're worried that, you know, adding dick is going to make things incalculably worse, you can meet her and then not add dick. But I'm kind of an optimist. I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there in terrific relationships who, you know, are on other sides of the country. They met on kink websites. They met on very unique websites that bring people together for very unique reasons. And they found the right partner. And they had to take this kind of a risk. They had to bungee jump a little bit at the beginning of the relationship and risk meeting each other, even as crazy as it seemed, even as uh, nerve wracking as it Exactly, seem... exactly. Well, this, there this... are crazier circumstances that people have started seeing each other. Under. Exactly. And this and, and you're nervous cuz the stakes are high. 
Because what if you're about to stick your dick in crazy? What if it gets crazier once you meet her? What if she's not really interested in you, but she's forming you like you're a ball of clay into something you're not, into a person you're not? Or you're the reason she's going to hit the self-destruct button on the life she's got now, and that will, in a way, make you feel obligated to her emotionally, sexually, romantically. Because if she threw all that away for you... Then you can't break up with her. That's the feeling that people sometimes get when somebody throws everything away and runs off with them. Then you're like, no, well, I can never I, break know, up I'm not going to let anybody put me in the corner. You know that. <laughs> well, then say that to her in advance. Say, look, I'm happy that you're excited about me. It's nice to be wanted this badly. We actually have never met. We actually don't know each other. Chemically, we might not gel if you want to live on this part in this part of the country where I am, that's a decision you need to make independent of whether we're together because we may or may not be together. Almost okay. all relationships fail. And ours until one until one goes right. Until one doesn't. Right. You listen to the show, like you said in your call. Or, or like you said a minute ago. Until one doesn't. And but you can't know that this is that one or one of the ones that won't in the course of your life, because people can have many successful sure. relationships over the course of their life. And so you just need to like have an outside of whatever sexual roles you guys established based on the kink thing that brought you together. You need to step out of that and just unload and say, you're putting too much pressure on me. I don't want you to move out here for me. You can free person. You can move wherever you want to around the country. If you want to end your engagement, end your engagement, regardless of who I am or the role I'm playing in your life. That's a decision you need to make separate from me. And we can see each other. And if she freaks out when you like, Give her that kind of straight talk. If what you get from her isn't, yeah, I know, I've been probably overthinking this and a little too excited about it, and I'm sorry if I've made you feel uncomfortable by rushing at you. Let's meet and see how we feel. If that's not the reaction you get, if you get some sort of unhinged bat shittery, then, yeah, maybe you meet her. Maybe. But don't... And then just check into a double tree and forget about it. I feel like I've already taken these steps. Because I know I know how to handle this because you've taught me. So I was up front. I said, um, you know, I'm not sure where you see this going. I'm trying to drain my balls. Um, I mean, if it turns into a thing, then that'd be great as well. And I think, uh, you know, I unloaded that on her. She unloaded on me. And now I think we're at a middle ground where we're just going to see how it works out. So it sounds like she said the right thing after you said, look, you're going too fast. I'm just going to drain my balls. Who knows what else will come of it? Well, she was, well, the problem is, is like, she's always only had one boyfriend. Now she's engaged to that boyfriend. So she's only ever had one relationship in her life. And so like, she's been like really stifling me, like calling me all the time and shit like that every day. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, I've had to start like, putting boundaries inside of this relationship that's only happening over the phone. She was like calling me at like 6.30 a.m. Oh then God. calling me immediately after I got off of work. Like, and so I had to, I mean, I think I've effectively like been able to help her adopt some maturity about backing off and giving me my space as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, all these are starting to sound like red flags, but talking through it with you, I well, feel like maybe I need to. You know, on the one hand, they sound like red flags. On the other hand, she's only ever had one boyfriend in her entire life, and so she kind of doesn't know what she's doing. Most of us... Catch you, throw her a bone, catch her a brick, right? Throw her a bone, maybe catch her a brick, but you have to make that judgment call based on your interactions with her. Like, most of us fucked yeah. up relationships when we weren't very good at having them, and you know, did things that, in retrospect, or because some subsequent boyfriend or girlfriend slapped us down for, we realized was 
a bad strategy or unfair to the other person in a way that we couldn't perceive because we we're so myopic and self-obsessed that we didn't realize that calling somebody at 630 in the morning and then immediately after they got off work was a bit crowding and made me made you exactly. less attractive as a as a potential sexual or romantic partner. And that takes, exactly, that exactly. takes that there's a learning curve uh, in relationships. And if she's only ever been in this one relationship and it was really intense and they're the kind of boyfriend and girlfriend who mind meld and talk all the fucking time, maybe she thought that that's what people generally want. And you know what? People okay. generally don't. But someone has to tell a lot of people who assume that that's what people want, that that's not what people want. And then did she learn? When you said that, did it stop? Oh yeah, she. That we we're able to manage that a whole lot better. Okay, well that's a good sign. The calling you at six thirty in the morning, bad sign. You told her to knock yeah. it off. She knocked it off. Good sign. So meet with her, see how it goes. But you know what I would do? One last bit of advice before we we go on to the next call. Tell her that the first night that you meet, when you come, you're not going to come. That the first night you meet, you're just going to hang out, and there will be no removing of pants and no removing of shirts and you can maybe kiss a little bit but there will be no sex you're just going to get to know each other a little bit is that what you think i should do yeah i do think you should do that because then then you have like 24 hours you know however hot she is when you get there however sexy and enticing the kink scenario is that you two have been fantasizing about then you don't just jump right to that you, you won't leap to that past whatever reservations. If there are additional red flags that start popping up the moment you see her, okay. you're going to want to like jack off right before you see her and then take your dick and go home without touching her with it so that you can then make a, a, a more informed choice about whether you're going to be intimate, whether you're going to have sex with her the next day. And if it was all red flags and weird feelings and you're not sure and might be a bad idea you're likelier to resist making it worse by sticking your dick into it. And by it, I don't mean her as if she's an object. I mean, sticking your dick into this situation because sticking your dick into that kind of situation will make it worse. You're likelier to refrain from sticking your dick in it entirely. If you don't have sticking your dick in at that first night on the table or as an option, if I were you, I would stay at the double tree, stay at the double tree the whole time, have a neutral space. that's all your own. Hang out that first night in public. You don't know her. She doesn't know you. Have your own space. Oh, fuck. Okay. Good luck. Give, well, us, give us a call back. Let us angel. know how it went. Yes, sir. Okay, bye. Take care. Hey, Dan. I'm a straightish woman. I'm 24, Pacific Northwest. And I've been dating this guy for about nine months now, but I knew him for a couple of years before that. And we're pretty serious. Uh, however, <laughs> I've been dealing with anxiety and depression, not for the first time, and I need support in a big way right now. And he's happy to give it, but I have big problems asking for help, and I don't want to be a nuisance to him, um, which I know is fucked up, but whatever. Uh, he knows I'm this way. Uh, recently, his video games have become a big problem. He plays for long stretches while I'm there totally ignoring me and isn't communicative about when he will be playing so I can just not come over or in some cases go home from his house. I know I can probably chalk it up to my terrible self-esteem right now, but it still feels like he's just repeatedly choosing video games over me, and that is a shitty feeling when you already feel really lonely. Uh, He's otherwise very caring and sweet, and I love being around him, but 
I'm not getting to actually be around him. I tried to talk to him about it, but he doesn't seem to think he plays as much as he does when I'm there. And while he did previously mention that he was making a conscious effort to game less when I'm there, that seems to have gone out the window. Uh, do I keep bringing it up? Am I being overly needy? I feel like my judgment is so clouded by this fucking depression and I need some advice. Tell him that you want him to come over to your house when he wants to hang out with you so that you two can see each other at your place, your place, where there are no video games. And if he doesn't come over much or he doesn't come over at all, you have your answer, as depressing an answer as that might be. And I'm sorry to potentially make things worse or more fraught. But like Joan Price, frequent guest expert here on the Savage Lovecast, said a few months ago, it's better to feel lonely because you're alone than to feel lonely because you're with the wrong person. And if he can't meet your needs, if he can't be there for you, if he doesn't want to be with you when he's with you, you might want to be with someone else. And that, of course, will require you being on your own for a while, which I think... And I don't suffer from depression and anxiety. So if I'm speaking out of line or out of turn, you guys who do suffer from depression and anxiety, let me know. I think you will probably be less depressed and less anxious without someone in your life who's failing you the way he seems to be than just on your own until you find someone else, which will require a period of time when you're with no one else. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old woman in the Northeast. I'm calling with a question about talking to my boss about her inappropriate behavior. I work for an organization in a fairly rural area. Most of the staff are in their 20s or 30s, and many live in company housing. Because there isn't much going on in the area, we generally socialize together. Last Halloween, one of my coworkers threw a party. The president of our organization, who lives just down the road, came with her husband and teenage son. Folks were drinking, and she got pretty tipsy. Another coworker had come to the party in an alien costume, consisting of a skin-tight Lycra suit without much on underneath it. My boss started to make comments about him, such as, look, ladies, you can tell if he's circumcised, even asking another coworker's girlfriend, who was much older, if the costume made her wet. This made everyone incredibly uncomfortable. To make things worse, at another party a few weeks ago, she brought up the subject again, even offering to show photos of the Halloween costume to someone, saying she still had them on her phone. Despite the fact that all of this took place after hours, her behavior was very clearly inappropriate to me. I also think that if the genders were reversed in the situation, this would instantaneously be perceived as sexually, sexual harassment and completely unacceptable. I feel like someone needs to say something, and I suspect I'm the only person who will, but I'm not quite sure what to say. My first thought was that I would send her an informal note just mentioning that her behavior had made people uncomfortable, but I realized that the line between a friendly reminder and a formal accusation of sexual harassment might be kind of thin. How do I stand up for my coworker and what I think is right in the situation? Should I try to talk to her in person, send her an email at work, an anonymous note? And when I bring it up, what tax should I take? Her be is her behavior so atrocious that I just need to make a formal complaint? Thanks, Dan. You know, on the one hand, your drunk boss at the Halloween party kind of embarrassed herself and made you uncomfortable. You don't ever mention whether she made the dude in the skin-tight Lycra suit uncomfortable, and I think that's relevant, and perhaps you would have mentioned it if he indeed was curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom after it was all over crying. Maybe you would have mentioned that too, but you don't say whether he was traumatized, but you were clearly offended on his behalf. So on the one hand, yeah, it's 
awkward and uncomfortable and nobody wants, you know, the old boss with the teenage kids showing up at a party and creeping on your peers, people, coworkers of, of your own age, because it's just going to make you uncomfortable. But clearly, booze has an effect on your boss that way, where things she might not say at work and sober and or sober, she will say at a Halloween party after she's had a few. So, yeah, on the one hand, this is not okay. On the other hand, you know, you wear a skin-tight Lycra costume to a Halloween party where your genitals are basically observable. And you're kind of inviting comment. You're kind of presenting yourself as a sexual being and a sexual object. And people are going to think thoughts and sometimes in the context of a party, a Halloween party, alcohol is going to pry those thoughts loose and they're going to fall out of people's mouths. So that is a risk you are knowingly running. That is a risk you are assuming. Those are comments in a way, in that context, you're kind of inviting. It's not somebody coming up to you on the subway when you're on your way home from the gym and you're wearing sweats and starting to talk about your sweaty junk that they can see from across the aisle. Halloween party, you sexualized yourself, da-da-da-da. All right. And on the other hand, we have many, many hands today. On the other, other hand, if the genders were reversed, it totally wouldn't be okay. Yeah, but it it's not exactly parallel. Yes, people in positions of power and authority shouldn't sexualize or comment on their underlings and blah, blah, blah. But if you reverse the genders, then your male bosses, your hypothetical male bosses' comments on a female staffer's genitals at a Halloween party would exist in a context of thousands of years of sexist, misogynistic oppression and exploitation and a history going back millennia of men abusing their authority and power over women to leverage out of them what they want to gain sexual access to them. Doesn't sound like that's what your boss is doing. It also doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like that's what your boss is doing. She's just, impressed. And it doesn't sound like it's exactly parallel if you reverse the genders. I'm sorry, it just doesn't sound that way. I think you should dial back the me, 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 me of this. You need to work on the tone in which you talk about this because just a little Tracy Flickish, officious, uptight, misplaced, and you need to dial that, that me, 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 way the fuck back and just be casual. As a friend and a colleague, say to your boss, yeah, that skin-tight Lycra outfit was a little something, but kind of makes folks uncomfortable when their bosses talk about their appearances or their genitals, even at a Halloween party, even if it looks like they're inviting it. So it makes me uncomfortable when you talk about Josiah or whatever the fuck his name was. When you talk about Josiah's dick or you let us all know that you still have pictures of his dick on your phone, it makes me uncomfortable. You can save the pics. Nobody has to know, but... You might not want to talk about it at work or in front of us. Talk about it with your peers. You can go to your peers and say, I have this staffer who, boy, the dick on that kid. Want to see it? Say that to someone that you know socially in your peer group. But when you say it to us in our peer group, it makes us feel uncomf. You'd be doing her a solid. One of the tech-savvy at-risk youth just informed me, advised me to say I didn't know tech-savvy at-risk youth or youth at all, we're still saying doing a solid. I didn't know that was still a phrase in circulation, but apparently it is. Apparently it's on fleek, as the kids say, that phrase. 
And you can really drive home the fact that you're not just trying to create a safer workplace for you and the rest of your peers and all of her underlings, but you're protecting her in a way. Because you could say to her, I don't think he was uncomfortable. He's never said anything. Asterisk, if indeed he's never said anything about feeling uncomfortable about her behavior that night. But if he did, if he was uncomfortable and he filed a complaint or something, you could get in so much trouble. And I don't want to see you get into trouble because this aside, you've been a great boss. Asterix, if that's true, you should say that. So you'd be doing her a solid and you wouldn't be participating in the sex negative, uptight, scold, 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 fault finding shit show that is increasingly the culture in workplaces and universities and elsewhere. Hey, Dan. This is a 19-year-old listener from the Midwest. Recently, on one of my visits home from college, I was talking with one of my friends who's a gay guy, also from college, about, you know, newfound sex explorations. And he confided in me that some of the older men he was hooking up with were paying him for his services. Now, I'm a very sex-positive person. I think prostitution should be legal. So I called and asked him, are you enjoying your encounters? And he said, yes, for the most part, though he's been in one or two that he maybe found distasteful or more compromising than he would have liked. I said, do you wear a condom? He said, always. He'd been tested for SCDs. And he said, yes. So I was just wondering, is there any other advice I could give him or questions or considerations that should be raised? I mean... I understand it's his life, and it sounds like for the most part he's enjoying it. So I think that's great, but he's only 19, and he's really young. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on the matter or anything else you think I should talk about him with. Just please, your thoughts would be welcome. Joining me by phone to help tackle this one. Actually, joining me by phone to help fist this one, Mike Crawford, sex worker, sex workers' rights activist. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good, Dan. So, Mike, how long have you been doing sex work professionally? Almost two decades, it almost, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you must have some perspective on this career. I think so, yes. Okay, so let's let's pretend you meet some 19-year-old gay kid who has started doing sex work, and what would your five minutes in uh, Starbucks after you run into this kid, what would your download be? What are the things the bullet points, the things that he really needs to know if he's going to keep doing this. Yeah. So I would say, I would say the first thing that I would tell him to do is to do a quick Google search of sex worker screening tips. Um, Because of the nature of our work, because it is criminalized in in this country, um, unfortunately that creates some additional risks. Um, People have a tendency to believe that sex work is inherently risky when in fact the work itself is not in decriminalized environments. It's, rated more safe than being an ambulance nurse, for example. Mm -hmm. But criminalization, unfortunately, introduces some risks. So that would be the first thing that I would tell him to do. You want to make sure that you're screening your clients um, to to ensure your own safety. And one of the reasons, if I may jump in, one of the reasons that's so important and one of the ways criminalization actually makes things worse for the sex workers that the prohibitionists claim to care so much about is that if you have a shitty client who's treated you badly or is threatening you, you can't go to the police. You can't go to the authorities. You can't turn anywhere for help. 
Exactly. You can't turn anywhere for for help. And unfortunately, the bad actors out there who would take advantage of a sex worker, who might abuse a sex worker, are aware of that fact. And they mm. use that fact for leverage and target sex workers accordingly. That's one of the reasons that criminalization is, is so detrimental to the sex worker community. And in uh, the system we have now in this country with criminalization, that's why screening is so important. So what will he find if he Googles sex workers, screening clients, what's the information he's going to find there that he needs? Well, it's really going to depend on the situation, whether he's meeting individuals online through an ad that he has up, or um, it sounded like, based on the caller's uh, description, that this might be more of a kind of informal, opportunistic type of situation where he meets a gentleman who he may not be particularly attracted to, the gentleman hits on him, the gentleman realizes he's not particularly attracted to him, and kind of sweetens the deal, as it were. Um, in those cases, you've met the individual in person. Um, there's a good chance that you're not dealing with law enforcement. Um, so screening is, a, a, I don't want to say it's less important, um, but it's a little bit different than if you're meeting people. And, and this could happen on Grindr, for example. It could happen a few places in ad. In those types of situations, you really want to make sure that you get the individual's name um, that you Google that person, um, you get some kind of verifiable contact information for them. And um, what I typically recommend for sex workers, if they have somebody that they can do this with, is to use a buddy system and share that contact information with somebody so that if anything should arise, somebody has that information and can do with it what they may need to. Somebody knows where um, you, you are and knows who you're with. That's not just a good idea for sex workers. That's a good idea for anyone who's meeting up with someone they don't know well or don't know at all for sex. And that's exactly right. And a lot of the tips that you'll see out there, whether it's safer sex practices, whether it's um, you know being careful about meeting people, all of these things are fairly universal, to your point, that they should be things that people are doing in any kind of hookup situation. Now, a lot of uh, I've talked to in the past some other people who were his age, 19 years old, uh, 20 years old, 21 years old, who had begun doing sex work. And most of them, most of the young people I've talked to do sex work, were putting ads on Craigslist, were putting ads on Backpage. Are there particular risks when you hang out a shingle in those spaces? The biggest risk probably is law enforcement. Law enforcement targets those spaces sometimes for raids. Um, so that's always a risk that you're going to take, and that's another reason that screening is really important. You're not just screening for bad clients and gaining contact information for those clients, um, but you're also trying to screen out law enforcement themselves. Mm -hmm. um, sex workers tend to be more concerned on the whole, and, and studies bear this out, about law enforcement abuse than they are about bad clients, which is not to say that bad clients don't exist, but um, law enforcement are some of the Law enforcement officers are some of the biggest abusers of sex work and workers, and you know certainly a criminal record is not helpful for anyone. And a criminal record isn't exactly the best way to get out of sex work. A lot of people out there who want to see sex workers arrested and prosecuted because they want them to get out of sex work, but having a criminal record makes it difficult to pivot to some other career choice. Absolutely. It certainly does no good for anyone to have a criminal record in terms of pursuing a different line of work. Any advice, particularly for uh, a, a gay male sex worker, for a dude who's working with dudes who may all not be gay? The, there's a lot of male sex workers out there who aren't gay, who are bi or are gay for pay. And there are clients out there, of course, mm -hmm. who are bi. But particular advice for guys who are servicing guys. 
who are often left out of the conversation when it comes to sex work. Usually with the conversation about prohibition, decriminalization, about the harms, about pimping, about the brothels, it's always about women as if there weren't men out there doing sex work, but there are many, many, many men out there doing sex work. What do they need to know? Yeah, there are many men, and particularly in the age group that we're talking about here. Um, a study out of New York found that almost almost 50% of the of the sex workers that they encountered in the, this very young age um, were were male. Um, in terms of particular advice, most of it is fairly universal in terms of whether you're a male or a female working in in the business. Um, the good thing about men is uh, the good thing is that we're less likely to be targeted by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of reasons for that that are very gendered and, and can point back to just how much there's a very Victorian line of thought around sex work prohibition. But it is true that, well, with the bust of rentboy.com, um, notwithstanding that male sex workers aren't targeted as much by law enforcement. Um, the only advice that I would give that would be specific is just, um, you know, would probably be around the actual sex acts themselves and making sure, um, you know, that you're using all of the, the safer sex practices, et cetera. And again, most of those are universal as well. So it's not really any particular gendered advice I would give. Get on prep if you're negative. That's, that's right. Yes, I would say absolutely. That's, that's a very good idea. And if you're positive, be, you know, adhere to your drugs take take your take your medicines and get out there with a zero viral load but still use protection even if you're already positive. absolutely yep absolutely mike crawford sex worker and sex worker rights activist follow him on twitter at bring me the axe hey mike thank you so much for jumping on the phone it's a pleasure chatting pleasure dan hi dan i'm a 25 year old living with my boyfriend of two years um i Looked through his porn, and I guess that's kind of, you know, if you're looking for something, you're going to find something no matter what. First, it was just kind of like normal porn, whatever. And then I saw pictures of little girls. It's not sexual. It's just pictures of them in bikinis, but it's part of his porn folder. So clearly, this is something he enjoyed. Then I was, you know, exploring more, and I found a video of him using his sister's bra to jerk off at his parents' house when we were there for Christmas. His sister is older than him. Doesn't really make it much better in my opinion. Like I guess in this way it's not um, anything pedophilic, but he is doing something completely inappropriate. This, his sister's wearing it later. It's just like insane to me and so upsetting. And I eventually obviously had to confront him and he's just saying he was horny. It felt good. And when he was looking at the pictures of those little girls, it wasn't like that. He just wasn't really in the right headspace. He would never actually do that. But it's saved and it's so strange to me and I just don't know if I'm and he's what I'm supposed to feel and uh, he's saying he would change and I like feel like how can I expect somebody to change or not to do these things when it's clearly so part of their nature and like I just think this is him saying it so I don't stay upset and he doesn't have to deal with it anymore. Joining me by phone from San Francisco to help field this question, Tracy Clark Flurry is a senior staff writer at the online magazine Vocative, where she covers the sex beat. She's been published in Elle, Mary Claire, Salon, and in the yearly Best Sex Writing Anthology. Tracy also wrote a story recently for Vocative titled Virtuous Pedophiles Put Therapists in an Ethical Catch-22. Hey, Tracy, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for coming back on the show. 
Happy to be here. Before we get to the question, let's talk about your article. This is something that we've covered on the podcast a bit. We've talked to James Cantor and some other sex experts and sex researchers about pedophilia and how best to help people with pedophilia, not Mm -hmm. to offend. And I found even in the little bit of writing that I've done about pedophilia uh, and people really burdened with this, that any empathizing with their plight not the plight of sex offenders, not the plight of a pedophile who's harmed a child or molested a child, but the plight of someone who is cursed with these desires that he knows he can never act on, who is successfully not acting on them. And empathizing with that, you just get attacked. I've been attacked and accused of enabling mm-hmm. pedophilia or uh, helping pedophiles. What's been the response to your article? You know, there's a little bit of blowback on Twitter. Um, It wasn't so bad for this article, but in the past when I've touched on this topic at all, it has been enormous. The the anger is huge. Um, And, you know, I hear routinely from people who are angry about stories that I wrote on this topic years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just, you know, there's this feeling that there is no room at all for sympathy for pedophiles even pedophiles who are very much dedicated to not acting on their desires ever. And pedophiles who are dedicated to helping other pedophiles to never act on their desires, which is where the phrase virtuous pedophile comes in. Can you tell us a little about your story? Yeah. So the piece basically looks at this catch 22 for therapists, um, which is how can they help people who are attracted to minors while also following laws that actually sometimes obligate them to report those clients to authorities. Um, And that's because of mandatory reporting laws in the U S which vary state to state. And the whole point of these laws is to protect children from sexual abuse. Um, But depending on how these laws are written, it can require therapists to call the authorities on clients who admit to having viewed child porn, even accidentally. Um, it can mandate reporting for abuse that happened a long time ago um, to a minor who is now an adult. Um, it can require reporting on, you know, uh, prepubescent clients who have touched a sibling in a game of doctor um, or, you know, minors who have engaged in consensual oral sex uh, with another minor. It can mean reporting on people who have never even touched a kid but fantasize about a specific child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the worst, most egregious case, they can actually obligate therapists to violate the wishes of adult clients who disclose that they were abused as children um, and don't want the authorities to know about it. And for me, where the sort of rubber meets the road with these laws is that it off, you know, someone who's viewing child porn, I have a problem with that person. Someone who in the past molested a child, I have a real problem with that person. But there are people who have never touched a child who want help to continue not touching children. Mm-hmm. And they don't go get the help that they need. So we're preventing non-offending pedophiles from getting the support and information and resources and strategies that they need to help them not offend. So we've created a circumstance, created a situation where we're we're making it harder for people who are pedophiles not to act on their desires. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a ton of these guys for this article and, you know, they, they all say that they have never touched a kid. Um, they very much do not want to, but they also feel very much that they need help in that. Mm-hmm. They need help along the way, but they are terrified. They're way too scared 
to go see a therapist because if they say the wrong thing, they feel like the cops are going to be knocking on their door, um, even though they've never touched a kid before. And so, you know, a lot of times they end up going online and <laughs> they end up talking to each other. Um, and there's even a guy interviewed for this piece who actually wanted to become a therapist himself, went to school for it, got kicked out of school because during his training, he disclosed that he was a pedophile. And so now he is unlicensed and sort of offers pro bono, uh, unprofessional help to people who want it. Mm -hmm. Um, And he routinely talks to them on the phone and sort of, you know, engages in counseling sessions with them. To, To keep them from offending. Yeah. 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 His goal is very much to keep them from offending. And, you know, the question is like, are are pedophiles who do not want to offend best served by an untrained sympathetic ear, or should they be going to someone who uh, is actually trained in this? The article is Virtuous Pedophiles. You can read it at vocative.com. Okay. Let's talk about the caller and her question. So when you snoop, you sometimes find out things you don't need to know and probably would rather have not known. Sometimes when you snoop, you find out things you might need to know and may benefit from knowing. And this may be an instance of the latter, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, usually I would say, you know, if you snoop and you find something, you violate your partner's trust, you find something you don't like, like tough luck. But I, I think, you know, this is, this is a special circumstance. Um, yeah, it's that crazy circumstance I think, that I talk about when I talk about snooping that it's always wrong, but retroactively, it can be absolutely the right thing to do. Like when you begin to snoop, right. you're always wrong, but you might find out something that you needed to know and should know. And so there's retroactive yeah. sort of a blessing retroactively is, is yeah. bestowed upon that snooping, but you can't know in advance, which is not licensed to snoop generally. She, her questions is, you know, he's got mixed in with his porn images of prepubescent girls that are not necessarily child porn, but they are now contextualized as porn as his porn lumped together with his porn. And that video of him masturbating with his sister's bra that then later she apparently was going to wear post masturbation. And her question is, how should I feel about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would be feeling my way to the door about that. Right. Right. Well, I think a lot of people would. And I think, I think, you know, there are two ways to sort of look at this question. There's like the individual level, which is like, what should this lady do about her boyfriend? And then there's like the bigger social issue of like, how, how should society think about men like this? And, um, you know, it seems, it seems possible. We certainly couldn't diagnose him from the information she provided, but it seems possible that he could be what's called a non-exclusive pedophile, meaning that he's attracted to adults and children, Um, and so I guess, you know, she should know that if that's the case, that he's a non-exclusive pedophile, um, that there are many non-exclusive pedophiles and exclusive pedophiles who, like we were talking about, are very much committed to never offending against a child. So she shouldn't Um, realize that when he says, when he says he would never actually do that, you shouldn't Uh necessarily disbelieve him. Yeah. And another interesting thing too, is that there's been research recently that suggests people who have been caught with actual child pornography are not more likely to offend against children in person. Many people argue that, you know, watching child porn itself is abuse of children, of course, but the research suggests that viewing child pornography itself does not mean that you're more likely to commit abuse in person against a child. Mm -hmm. So that's another important thing for her to keep in mind. And also, you know, in, in the virtuous pedophiles online community, um, I found 
many instances of wives and girlfriends who are on there um, seeking support about their virtuous pedophile um, partners. And so there certainly are people who make those relationships work. I've, I interviewed several um, non-exclusive pedophiles who are in relationships, are married. Um, so, you know, none of that is to say that she should stay in the relationship. It's just to say that a relationship is possible in theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the question is just, is this something she can live with? Um, the other thing is like, is this something he can actually open up to her about? Because it, it sounds like he's very much not willing to go there with her. He's sort of making excuses for how it ended up in his porn folder, which the fact that someone, that people still have porn folders on their computers was actually one of the more surprising things about this call. But, um, you know, it sounds like he's very much like making excuses, not willing to cop to his sexual desires. Okay. This, the combo of these two things together though, really raises a red flag for me because even if he was, you know, he could admit and say, I've always struggled with this. I've never touched a child. I would never touch a child. I don't have any images of child pornography. I do have these images of, you know, just post-pubescent girls or just pre-pubescent girls in my porn folder for the reasons that you probably rightly said, but I would never do anything. I would never cross that mm-hmm. line. And even if he could convincingly lay that out, even if it was absolutely true, there's something about the combo of that with the violation really of his sister that those two things taken together would lead me leave me feeling really uncomfortable Uh, you know i'd already be super uncomfortable about the the little girls the desire Mm -hmm. for but then that mixed up with some sort of impulse control problem or some sort of desire toward the secret violation of someone else's sort of undergarment sexual space to you know that having something over on someone where they're wearing the bra that they don't know that you jerked off in and that gives you that secret thrill about what you got away with about that transgression mm-hmm. and that violation and that's what these two things taken together i wouldn't necessarily believe him if i were in her shoes if he said i've struggled yeah. with these desires i would never act on them i've sought counseling you know i will delete these and blah 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 but there's something about like having these desires and also obviously having this being turned on by violation, being turned on by that kind of transgression right. against uh, someone you know, against your own sibling, that those two together just mm-hmm. seem toxic to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally, totally agree. It's, it seems like he's um, really compulsively drawn to the, to the most inappropriate and sort of taboo behaviors that he can imagine. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, frankly, if I was in her shoes, I would be running for the hills. That would be my advice too. I think we came to the same conclusion. Tracy Clark Flory, check out her stuff at Vocative. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's always a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan, we're big fans of your show and our family has started to do a Fitbit challenge. The problem is we believe a sister-in-law is definitely cheating on the challenge. What do we do about this? Should we confront her about the cheating or should we just let it slide and hope that we're all healthier for it? I don't know quite how a Fitbit works, so I can't quite figure out how you would cheat at Fitbit. Are people just reporting their numbers to HQ and somebody's got an Excel spreadsheet open and they're entering all the family's numbers? Or with Fitbit, can you all be plugged into the web and your Fitbit bracelets or cock rings or whatever the fuck they are, upload the data and you can all then compare the data and 
your sister-in-law could be cheating either by misreporting her numbers if you're you hired an accountant to keep track or she could be cheating by strapping her fitbit to her dog and letting it run all over the world who knows and really who gives a flying fuck if you think she's cheating and i don't know why she she's only cheating herself if you think she's she's only cheating herself you can put a little asterisk next to her numbers and disregard them when the whole family looks at them or i suppose you could confront her but to what end unless there's a large cash prize unless there's a pot of gold at the end of this fitbit rainbow i don't see any reason to confront your lying sister-in-law just roll your eyes immediately after dragging them across her numbers and look at the real ones that hopefully come after. Hi, Dan. I am a 35-year-old straight woman, um, and I have a relationship quandary that I'm hoping you can help me with. For about 10 years, during my early 20s and 30s, I was in a pretty emotionally abusive relationship with my ex. He would yell at me and belittle me and just really take any sort of opportunity to tear me down. And uh, he always made me feel like I was, like, really selfish and thoughtless and irresponsible. Um, And I felt really bad about it. And I was always trying to, like, change and do better. And it took me a really long time to figure out that, like, I couldn't do better because it wasn't about me. It was about making me feel bad so that he could control me. But thankfully, that relationship ended, and I was by myself. I was single for about two years and really just took some time to, like, work on my self-esteem and work on, you know, how I saw myself and, you know, build myself back up. About 18 months ago, I uh, started dating my now fiancé. It's my first serious relationship since I broke up with my ex. And he's nothing like my ex. Like, he's amazing. He's so loving and so sweet and so kind, and I just love everything about him. Um, But the problem is we moved in together about three months ago, and I'm finding living with him to be really triggering. Like, And I don't think it's living with him. I think it's living with anybody. It's just having somebody in my space and, like, having that level of intimacy where he can see who I really am, like, day in and day out, like, laid bare, I don't know. It just it gives me so much anxiety, and I guess I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like he's gonna suddenly start treating me like my ex treated me, even though he never has. So I really don't know what to do because it sucks to live with this much anxiety, like every single day. And I don't want to break up with him, and I don't want to move out. Like I love him to death. I just want to feel better. So do you have any thoughts on like what I could do to maybe just get past this and start? enjoying the life that I'm building with my fiance. If you're being triggered, if dynamics in your relationship now are dredging up painful memories and you're reliving them, you might want to talk that over with a therapist or a counselor in addition to a mouthy faggot with a sex advice podcast. I do have a couple of suggestions, but I wanted to lead with that. If you're really experiencing and I'm not doubting you or gainsaying. If you're, if you're experiencing anxiety, if you're finding the new experience of, of, of living together with your fiancé triggering, talk to someone about that. Get a therapist, get a counselor, and really unpack it at length. Two suggestions, or two thoughts. One suggestion and one thought. Thought, you've only been living together for three months. The longer you live together, 
you will come to see that he is not going to treat you like you. Right now, you're afraid that he could at any moment start treating you like your ex treated you when you lived together. And the only way for him to demonstrate that he will never treat you like your ex now that you live together is for him to continue not treating you like your ex did as you live together. And hopefully, as that plays out over time, as another three months pass and then an additional six months pass, and then it's been a year, and then it's been two years, and he has never once treated you like your ex, hasn't begun to treat you like your ex, you will trust, you will know in your bones that he ain't your ex, wasn't your ex when you weren't living together, ain't your ex now that you are living together. In the meantime, in the short run, over the next couple of months, maybe pot. Maybe when you're experiencing that tension and anxiety and you feel yourself worrying over nothing, maybe a pot lozenge, maybe one or two puffs, just to put you in the moment to help relieve the anxiety, the needless anxiety and the needless stress. And again, please go talk this over with the counselor as well. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old woman dating a 26-year-old man in the South. I'm just so frustrated right now, and I just had to call. I just left my boyfriend's apartment, and we had an argument about the same thing that always comes up. He always tells me I use sex as a weapon. It's just unbelievable to him sometimes that I just don't want to have sex. I mean, he doesn't understand that it's my choice if I want a penis inside my vagina or not. Like, I'm never obligated to have sex with anyone. And sometimes I only just want to cuddle. I mean... I guess it might be strange, but I just like being on his body and just touching him and cuddling. And that's great to me. I mean, I feel like I need that kind of affection sometimes just without sex. And I especially don't want to have sex if he's like said something mean or fucked up like this past weekend. He was drunk or that was his excuse, rather. And he told me that I'm the worst person he's ever been with along with some other things. Uh, I saw him last night for the first time after that exchange. Uh, He told me he needed to get away for a day or two just to kind of cool off. And I saw him last night, and he told me how sexually frustrated he was, but nothing happened last night. We didn't have sex. And this morning, we wake up in bed, and he asked me if I was still on strike. And I just cuddled up next to him just to be affectionate because I hadn't seen him. And he just laid there, basically, just, like, wanting me to start sucking his dick. Like, really? Really? It couldn't hurt to just cuddle and kiss and be lovable instead of just wanting me to go straight for the oral sex, just, like, straight for the dick? And then he tells me again, this morning, I use sex as a weapon. Sometimes I'm just so frustrated, I don't want to have sex. And he takes this as the worst thing I could do. Am I being stupid or crazy? Because he's making me feel like I'm crazy. I wish I could hear his side of the story. Because who knows? I don't know. Maybe he's been cuddling the shit out of you for weeks. And you haven't felt like having sex in weeks. And he has this expectation or this desire to be intimate with the person who is his exclusive sex partner. And so maybe out of desperation, he is lashing out out of deprivation, desperation, perhaps lashing out. Or maybe he's just an entitled asshole and you should break up with him. It was always my policy to break up with people who told me I was the worst person in the world or the worst person that they knew or whatever it was that he said to you. How 
ever. There is this thing that a lot of straight boys don't understand that we gay guys, we get it. And women, straight women, particularly women who have sex with men, you get it. And it's this. If every time you said yes to sex, you got fucked, you got penetrated, straight guys out there listening, if every time that you said yes to sex, you got fucked in the ass, you wouldn't say yes to sex every time you got asked because there are just times you don't feel like being penetrated. Physically, it's taxing. Emotionally, it's taxing. And there are times when you would rather not be fucked in the ass or the twat or the face. And if your sexual repertoire, guys, straight guys, is entirely limited to what do I get to fuck, ass, twat, or face, you're not going to get yes every time you ask a long-term partner for sex. But if your sexual repertoire is a bit more expansive, if you include mutual masturbation, not as a sad, sad, tragic consolation prize, but as something fun that you two can do together, if going down on her and jacking yourself off is something that you can incorporate and enjoy, again, not as a sad consolation prize, not as something you pout about, but as something that you are happy to do and something that you enjoy, you'll hear yes a lot more often if your definition of sex is really broad, like the gays in our definition of sex, which is really broad. Gays don't have a, if a butt didn't get fucked, it wasn't sex definition of sex. The way so many straight people have, if a twat didn't get fucked or an ass or a face didn't get fucked, it wasn't sex. Very broad definition of sex. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons, we hear yes a lot more often because we don't go into it feeling entitled to fuck the shit out of something or someone every time we want to or feel like it or ask or that every time we're horny. So if I was talking to your boyfriend, caller, I would say this. Cuddle more, kiss more, be intimate more. Throw mutual masturbation on the table as something that you guys can do together when she doesn't feel like being fucked. Throw oral sex on the table, not just her sucking your dick, but you eating her pussy at those times when, again, she doesn't feel like being fucked. And always bear in mind that if every time you said yes to sex, you got fucked, you would say yes a lot less often to sex if it meant getting fucked. Come up with a new definition of sex and intimacy or an expansive one that includes options for your girlfriends or your wives that don't come bundled with you get fucked and you will hear yes a lot more often. In response to episode 502, just a comment on the caller who wanted his girlfriend to put in a little more effort with the hair and the makeup. I just think you overlooked one important aspect, which might be the psychological breakdown. Um, I know from my own experience, when I was dealing with depression and anxiety, the first sign, the first thing that broke down for me was my appearance. So I just wanted to ensure that the caller was checking in on his partner's psychological well-being, making sure she first and foremost felt okay and well. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in episode 502 who was talking about how his girlfriend wasn't making an effort for him anymore. I have to tell you, Dan, I think you totally whiffed this one. If you think about how much time that it takes for a woman to get ready in the morning, even just 20 minutes on hair and makeup, five days a week for work, that's 100 minutes. It's more than an hour and a half that a woman has to put into her appearance 
where a guy is expected to spend probably no more than five minutes a day. So you're already talking about an extreme inequality of time put into one's appearance. If you're adding an additional, let's say, half an hour twice a week in order to make yourself look quote-unquote presentable for your boyfriend, that's another hour. That's time that you could be spent that you could spend doing basically anything else, things that you enjoy, things that make you interesting, not just pretty. Hi, I'm calling in response to the people with the cat humping problem in episode 502. Um, our cat may have the solution for you. So we got him as a stray. He was already neutered. And as he got comfortable with me, started humping my arm. I would give him a firm no and push him off like anybody who would be humping me without my consent. And eventually he took a stuffed animal and dragged it into a little cat house that they have and started humping that instead. So my solution would be to find a stuffed animal roughly the same size as your cat and have him hump that in his own little private area instead. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The call for submissions for 2016's Hump Film Festival is out there. Go to humpfilmfest.com for more information about making and submitting a film to the biggest, best amateur porn film festival in the country. Humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mike Crawford on Twitter at BringMeTheAxe. And follow Tracy Clark Flory on Twitter at Tracy Clark Flory. And I want to thank Dylan and everyone else at the Isthmus for letting me come in on Monday morning in Madison and record the top of the show. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back after next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.